Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good morning, everyone. So today we commemorate Yasutani Roshi, Hakuun Yasutani Roshi. Of course, I never met Yasutani Roshi. He died in 1973, which was actually before I had even heard of Zen, much less begun practicing it. But he was a figure of such great importance in the transmission of Zen Buddhism to the West, not only for the Zen Study Society, but for innumerable practitioners around the United States. He was born in 1885, a time of transition in Japan, a time when Japan was just beginning to enter the world stage having come out of a self-imposed isolation that had lasted for a very long time, centuries. Actually, the emergence from the self-imposed isolation was forced upon them when the United States sent gunships into Tokyo Harbor and forced the government of Japan to sign a treaty of trade. He was born into a very, very poor family and was put up for adoption and was actually raised in a series of Zen temples. He went to a Rinzai Zen temple when he was only five years old and then went to another Rinzai Zen temple a few years later and was ordained in a Sato Zen temple when he was just 13 years old and was given the name Hakuun. He studied Zen, but at the same time, he studied and trained to become a school teacher, which was his profession for uh, about 20 years. At 30, he was married and had five children. At 40, his real Zen training began under Harada Roshi. At 50, he received Dharma transmission from Harada Roshi and later left the Soto Zen sect, which was 
the sect that Harada Roshi belonged to and formed his own Zen school called Sanbo Kyodan. He was a strange mixture of Soto Zen and Rinzai Zen and never quite fit into the Japanese Zen establishment. For that reason, he felt impelled to start his own school. He was a complicated figure. During the war, he, along with many in the Zen hierarchy, was fiercely nationalistic, a very strong militarism was found in the Zen sect. He was extremely pro-war, pro-empire. He wrote uh, books extolling the virtues of killing as many enemies as possible. Some of his writings also reflected the anti-Semitism, which was present in Japanese society at the time. And yet somehow this nationalistic, imperialistic, anti-Semitic Zen teacher turned from that path and became one of the most outspoken and energetic proponents of spreading the Dharma to the West. His influence on American Zen is absolutely tremendous. My own introduction to Zen was flavored in large part by the book written by one of his disciples and Dharma heirs, Philip Kaplow. And many of you probably have read it, The Three Pillars of Zen in which Philip Kaplow describes Yasutani Roshi in great detail. Including descriptions of many of the Dokasan sessions that Kaplow Roshi was serving as translator during. Kaplaroshi then went on to found the Rochester Zen Center. Another Dharma heir, Yamada Kowun Roshi, was the teacher of Robert Aitken, who founded the Diamond Sangha in Hawaii and who hosted Ada Roshi in his initial foray out of Japan and into the United States. 
another one of his disciples, Taizun Maizumi Roshi, has had an outsized influence on Zen in the United States. His Dharma successors include Jan Chosen Bays, Tetsugan Bernie Glassman, John Dido Laurie, Charlotte Joko Beck. So the Zen Mountain Monastery, the Brooklyn Zen Center, the Village Zen Center, and Tetsugan Bernie Glassman ordained and taught and had many Dharma successors, including the founder of Upaya Zen Center in New Mexico. So a tremendous influence in the United States. So many Zen teachers, so many Zen centers, so many Zen students are indebted to him. Zen Studies Society is also greatly indebted to Yasutani Roshi, which is why even though he is not technically in our lineage, he is included in our dedications. Edo Roshi, the founder of New York Zendo and Daibosatsu Zendo, and the first abbot, was not technically a student of Yasutani Roshi, but worked with him extensively. The two first met in 1962. And Edo Roshi served Yasutani Roshi as translator, assistant, and Jiki Jitsu Jiki for most of the sessions that Yasutani Roshi led in the United States and abroad. He traveled with him extensively. He served as translator for many, 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 probably hundreds of sessions, both translating his Teisho and in the Doksan room. And his influence clearly persisted. Just imagine working in the Doksan room and seeing how Yasutani Roshi approached the students, how he handled students' questions and concerns, their suffering and their delusions.
imagine absorbing Teisho not simply as a passive listener, but as an active participant trying to put the Roshi's words into English at a time when Eda Roshi's English was not what it would later become. This was 1962, 63, 64, a period of about two years that he worked intensively with Yasutani Roshi. Those who knew Edo Roshi in the 1960s and even in the 1970s know that his English was a work in progress. And those who met him later knew that his English was quite wonderful, but that was after many years of struggling. So what do we make of this wonderful Zen teacher? So unlike other Zen teachers in Japan, so much of what he accomplished and so much of what has become Zen practice in the United States can be traced to the unusual circumstances of his life. There's a, a story about his birth a miraculous story, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Apparently his mother, when she realized that she was pregnant, desperately wanted her child to grow up to be a priest. And so she went to a Zen nun who gave her a prayer bead, a bead from a mala, and told her to swallow it. And so she did. And when Yasutani Roshi was born, he supposedly had the prayer bead in his fist. Of course, this is physiologically impossible, but a wonderful story and a story of how from the very beginning he was dedicated to a life of Zen. And of course, having grown up in Rinzai temples and Soto temples, having been trained by Harada Roshi, who had also trained under Rinzai and Soto Zen 
masters. And having lived many years as a layperson teaching in the Japanese school system, having been married, having had five children, he was uniquely situated by his life experience and by his teachers to explore a model of Zen practice very different from the monastery-based Zen practice in Japan. From the very beginning, he focused largely on teaching lay people. Philip Kaplow was a layperson. His sessions were attended mostly by lay people, not by monks. And of course, that was especially true in the United States. And so this model that we have in the United States of Zen as largely a lay practitioner's practice supplemented by a small core of monks and ordained. This was something new and something very unusual that came about through Yasutani Roshi. And at the same time, we have the complexity of Yasutani Roshi, how much he was a product of Japanese society, the prejudices and nationalistic ardor that is a kind of societal delusion. His writings during the Second World War were not simply a endorsement of Imperial Japan and war. They were a rallying cry, a very strong <clears throat> voice of unreason. And so his life in some ways was like a koan, a lesson to us that enlightenment 
does not mean all-knowing unfallibility by any means. One can be enlightened <clears throat> as to one's true nature and still have huge blind spots regarding society, politics, human rights. He was a very striking individual in terms of his physical features. He had huge ears that stuck out away from his head. He looked a little bit like a bat, almost like the uh, vampire in the old Murnau silent film version of Dracula called Nosferatu. Very, very striking face. And although he could be very vitriolic in his rhetoric, he was known as a very gentle person. There has been quite a lot written about him. You can find references to him in Eito Roshi's writing, particularly in the book Namo Daibosa, which details Eito Roshi's experiences with Yasutani Roshi. You can find quite a lot about him in Philip Kaplow's book, The Three Pillars of Zen. And of course, you can find a great deal about him online. And I encourage you to acquaint yourself with him. Well worth the effort. And that's all I have to say right now about Yasutani Roshi. And so I will open this up to comments and discussion. Thank you, Hokuto Sensei, for bringing Yasutani Roshi in all his complexity to 
all of us today. I knew him at the end of his life. As I've said a couple of times in my talks, my first husband and I were married by him at the old New York Sendo in 1967. And listening to his Taisho uh, during the months that followed, he really caught the difficulty very well. So Edo Roshi at the time, Taisan, was struggling with his English and Yasutani Roshi's Taisho went on for quite a while. And as you probably have experienced, uh, when you're listening to a Taisho that's also being translated, every few lines, there is quite a long time where someone is searching for the right word, maybe not getting exactly what was meant, coming back. So they were times for uh, people who were new to the practice as we were in terms of formal sitting of uh, great challenge. Mm. But nonetheless, both in conducting our ceremony and in giving his talks and guidance, we really could feel that you mentioned a turning. We really could feel that there was a gentleness and a loving heart in this little man, very small man with incredibly intense Zen presence. And uh, Maureen also refers to him in the book, Subtle Sound and the kind of, uh, uh, what should I say? The sessions that he led definitely had that intensity and a kind of underlying violence to them. So the, the practice that he had been trained in in Japan, particularly Harada Roshi's temple, was one that we read about the traditional use of the keisaku every few minutes and the kind of wildness uh, urging people on to Kensho. So he, he, even though at the end of his life, he had this gentleness, he also embodied that spirit in his teaching. Mm -hmm. I think now we'll move to our ending chanting. Thank you again, Hokuto-sensei. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.